How I Got Here, the inside stories of startups and innovation in travel and transportation with your hosts, FocusWire's Kevin May and Mozio's David Litwack. Hey everyone, welcome to Mozio and FocusWire's How I Got Here, stories in travel startups, our weekly podcast where we interview the travel industry's top travel founders. Today, we're here with Naren, CEO of Omeo, formerly GoEuro. Omeo, formerly GoEuro, has raised over $300 million and is one of the leaders in the multimodal transportation space. Uh, so thank you for being with, with us, Naren. Thank you for having me. So can we start with a little uh, brief overview, maybe a two to three minutes introduction to yourself and the story of GoEuro, and then we can dive right into questions. Absolutely. Um, so I founded this company out of my own personal experience. I had uh, finished business school uh, in the US. Uh, I had four months before I start my job, so I decided to travel Europe. Um, traveled, I think, 14 countries or, or something in four months. Um, and, and realized uh, a couple of things that made me build the company. And the couple of things were, one, I realized transport, global um, ground transport is everywhere, connecting every part of every country in Europe. Uh, trains and buses going to tiny villages so you, you can explore the culture, history, everything. But most of uh, transport beyond flights is largely not on any sort of distribution system. And when I look back uh, at, the, at the whole industry, it's not just Europe, it's a global problem. Simple questions like, how do I get from you know, um, uh, Bilbao to Madrid? How do I get from Shenzhen to Hong Kong or Kyoto to Tokyo or um, Rio to Sao Paulo? All of these questions are not answered today on a single product. And I realized that there is a huge um, opportunity to build a product that is global, that brings all transport together, not just ground, also flights, that connects all, all modes of transport. Um, as we call it, multi-mode in the, in, the, in, in, the, in the industry space. And then the second thing I realized was most um, travel products today are not, let's say travel as an industry is yet to produce the magical consumer experiences that you see in Amazon, Uber, uh, you, know, um, uh, you know, Netflix, Spotify. And these magical consumer experiences have changed consumption behavior, how people... Um, consume more uh, pricing, entire industry structures between supply and demand, etc. And, and for me, travel still is largely associated with anxiety, stress, uh, you know, simple mobile end-to-end -end solutions are yet to be seen. Um, so I thought bringing these together, you know, global transport, end-to-end -end connection, everything mobile is, is a big vision to go after. I was uh, uh, living in New York uh, uh, after that. Um, I quit my job, uh, moved to Germany uh, in 2012, and you know launched the product in 2013. It's it's interesting, Noreen, and you know you had this you know personal experience and challenges and difficulties that you had when you were traveling around Europe. And uh, I'm an interrailer of many occasions from the 90s myself, and thoroughly enjoyed it. And it, it is complex. When you realized that there was a problem that you felt needed to be solved. Did you then have a moment when you suddenly thought, oh, wow, that's actually really hard? Yeah, um, it was actually the, the way it, it happened for me was it started with, oh, wow, there is a genuine consumer problem because I faced it. And then I asked around and saw if other people faced it. 
And then I went from there to, oh, well, how can it be that no one else has solved this problem? It, <laughs> okay. It's so obvious. Uh, and from there, I went on to, oh, wow, now I understand. So it's almost like you dig in deeper and deeper you're in, um, you, because of your curiosity. And over time, you realize that, oh, wow, it's a very big problem. And the problem's very big problem uh, is, you know, from a consumer standpoint, I just want to buy a ticket or I just want to get to Rome from, you know, uh, from Bari or wherever. Um, the, the underlying infrastructure problem is country by country. There's large state-owned operators historically never gave their data to third parties before. Um, the underlying data is no standard whatsoever. There is no GDS uh, or global distribution system like Amadeus or Saber that consolidates rail or bus or ferries or any. any. So there is no plug-and-play solution um, that can give the consumer the answer they're looking for. And that's when I realized, okay, it's a very large problem in that someone has to solve it end-to-end from supply, from demand to supply, all parts of the equation from pricing, ticketing, mobile uh, scanners, everything, so you can bring this unified uh, solution to the market. So so it's almost like research plus uh, more questions that led to the epiphany that, okay, it is actually a very big problem to go after. And and that's, that's also one of the biggest reasons why I quit my job was I was working in New York you know, when, you're, when you have a job, it doesn't matter what job you have, the opportunity cost is much, much higher to quit everything, you know, take zero salary, go down to the base and, and start all over again. And, and, the, and, and it's even harder when you have to move countries where you <laughs> neither know a single human being nor a language. So it's like a cold move where you just take the risk and, and go into it. Um, so, so the opportunity cost clearly is high. Uh, that means that the problem you're going after has to be so much bigger for you to have the satisfaction that you're actually doing something much bigger than you can imagine. That's interesting. Well, uh, so there's uh, hope for those of us who are unemployed and have higher upside. So a quick question. Uh, I should have a full disclosure here. Mozio started eight and a half years ago with the same mission that uh, Go Euro has, and we obviously pivoted a couple times. Um, we no longer are, have that mission, but it's a problem I've spent a lot of time thinking about, actually. And um, so I was curious, kind of, what, what was your beachhead strategy? Because basically, you know, every form of transportation everywhere is uh, can sound like you're trying to boil the ocean. Um, and we've, you know, we spoke to uh, Paulina from Wanderoo, and she's adding, you know, other forms of transportation, but the focus was completely on buses to start and very regional in the Northeast. And um, obviously a little, there's, you know, part of the answer is in your name, Go Euro, it's somewhat of a regional focus, but I would love if you could expand on that a little bit more. Um, uh, yeah, how did you think about attacking this, this, this market? Yeah, so I think you said it very uh, uh, clearly in your in your one of your earlier statement, which is it is a boil the ocean kind of thing for most single mode, every mode, every operator. And if you think of like you know you can build a very very big product in one market alone um, because the, the markets for ground transport are very 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 large. You know UK rail ten billion pounds. Uh, you know, German rail about the same size, France even bigger. So you're talking about very big market sizes and millions of consumers, actually hundreds of millions of consumers um, are traveling every day on, on transport. So, so it is one of those things in terms of how do you start. Um, for me, the, the two biggest um, issues that I faced originally was um, we need to get state-owned operators to license their data. 
And the second one is we can't be doing only one country, one mode, because the consumer value proposition is, uh, is different. So you need to solve both the supply problem and demand problem. And how do you actually bring that together quickly um, so that you, know, you can keep scaling um, the product? So, so these were the two challenges. And the first uh, way I thought about it is you know, start as meta search, bring all the inventory as much as possible, redirect users to, to the you know, provider website, and you know, at least you're able to bring you know, some value to the demand clearly. You know, that was only a start because I learned along the way um, that, um, that it's not necessarily the case. So the original strategy was, you know, what does it take to get suppliers to give us their data? And the second one is, what does it take for consumers to see the value proposition that we can share back to the supply that we are adding value to them? And these are the two things I focused on initially. So, Sorry, Jamie, go ahead. Yeah, so it seems like like that's actually segues another uh, question I had around you started as meta search and you eventually decided to start adding booking and so when when did you feel like you were comfortable making that decision um, was it opportunistic um, and what is the state of you adding booking directly on the on the site yeah so that's a good question um, so we of course started as meta search uh, and we expanded horizontally across multiple modes multiple countries and there were actually two two pivotal moments that made us switch to booking and it happened in slightly different points in time the first one was that most ground transport is more like last minute than it is well researched well planned much months in advance so most of our transactions are you know same day next day within a week and most of them are on mobile and when we made the switch to mobile and when we realized that most consumers use us on mobile that's when we realized the first switch was as a company we went from you know desktop first launch to like mobile first to like mobile only and then you know of course we have a desktop but it's we do everything in mobile and then we bring it back to desktop so that focus on mobile to really nail the user experience on mobile was the first big um, switch. And then once we were on mobile, meta search as a business model simply doesn't work. Like I know plenty of companies that still do that, but I'm fundamentally of the belief that meta search on mobile simply doesn't work. You have such a poor experience in terms of, you know, latency, 3G networks. So ultimately, you you can't convert them into uh, you know, from discovery to users, and you don't really satisfy the consumer problem. So when we realized that most of our users are mobile, that's when we switched to on-site ticketing. And today, majority, I would say 95-ish or 90-plus percent of all um, uh, all our suppliers all, all transact on, uh, where the users can transact on our uh, platform today. And, and that is one of the biggest um, uh, things we've done as a company is provide these the consumers, this end-to-end, simple, one-click mobile ticketing that actually provides value to them. I'd also just chime in and say it's probably also partly because, you know, the, the meta search with flights, those airlines are re- relatively have okay websites that might be mobile optimized, but that's definitely not the case for a in Croatia, right? Yeah, exactly. Th- that is one of the reasons, but also today, 75 plus percent of all our users are on mobile. So it's it's in an industry where, you know, I think 60 plus percent of all ground transport uh, is transacted at a kiosk. We're doing 75 percent on mobile. So that huge switch had to be managed. And we've actually invested a lot on, on building our unified ground ticketing. So some things we don't speak about, like we 
are one of the most, uh, I guess, the largest mobile ticketing platform across Europe. All supply where we issue a mobile ticket is fully integrated into the supply network. So as a user, if we issue a mobile ticket, um, it is scannable on any underlying suppliers, you know, um, you know, the scanner, the belt of the conductor, it's, it's all the way there, deep integration. Um, so we do unify all the way to mobile ticketing to provide this simple experience. And we also provide the ticket offline. So it's, you know, so you, you don't have to worry about is there like Wi-Fi coverage or is there a network when I'm in the middle of the train or a bus in, um, when I'm traveling, et cetera. It's fully offline. So these are the kind of products that make uh, a game changer from a consumer perspective. I mean, it's, it's interesting that, you know, you were talking about the, the, the switch to mobile. I've got, just to roll back to that for a moment and more about the business. I mean, you obviously took the decision to put everything onto the mobile. Did you sense before then or as you were building up to it or was it after that it had gone live that you were going to have to make the switch? Is it something that you had planned for or was it one of those, oh, well, we probably need to start changing the business model here? Well, I see what you're saying. I think it, it was definitely planned for, but you, the, the switch to mobile is not not overnight. It's more like everything changes in your culture. You're hiring way more mobile uh, developers, full-fledged you know, Android, iOS teams. Your design does everything mobile first. Even simple things like SEO landing pages are fully started on mobile, which means you start thinking how to put content, how do users scroll, do they scroll? Um, so when you go mobile first or mobile only, it changes the whole strategy on how product organization thinks. Okay, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, how long did that switch from Meta to on to being an OTA take? I mean, what kind of process did you have to go through to yeah. stop to start pushing that through? Yeah, um, so we actually don't call ourselves OTA or Meta. We were, <laughs> we're because it's we're also a GDS. You know what I mean? We we build our own inventory, uh, so we're end to end transport. So so it's hard to yeah put ourselves in one bucket. Um, but the the switch from being pure affiliate lead gen Meta business model to full ticketing. Um, cancellation, mobile ticketing, even what we call today companion, where we provide platforms, delays, all information. So our job is to get the consumer safe, uh, safely to their destination. Um, that took roughly two full years across 800 plus suppliers across uh, 16 countries. Was that sorry? Just 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 on that, is that quicker or longer than you anticipated? Uh, Oh, that's a good question. I don't think we, uh, we, we went at it as fast as possible, if I can say. Because <laughs> the thing is, we've never built ticketing before. When you're talking about live inventory reservation systems on like, you know, underlying state inventory, low latency, and you have to take care of everything from fraud to payments, you've got to rebuild everything, including mobile scanners. So it's not something when you've not done before that you can put on a roadmap and say, this is how fast. You know what I mean? It's more like we need to be 100% on site as quickly as possible. We steamrolled through all trains and then we went to buses and now we're doing all air. Okay, David? Very cool. So um, I kind of, I'm interested in if you could talk a little bit about timing um, and also maybe what your secret sauce uh, was because or is. Um, I think you probably know about them. I'm blanking on their name. There was a very, very early competitor that sold before any of us started our businesses um, to Skyscanner. Um, and Zumbu. Uh, Zumbu, yeah. Yeah. Okay, that's what it was. 
Um, and I remember uh, speaking to the founder that when we were exploring this idea and she was basically saying that like the market was way too early. And then I think the next one to launch after that, after that was Rome to Rio. They launched about, I think about a year before Mozio tried this out and Mozio tried this out for a year and a half. And we, we came to the conclusion that like, okay, um, the timing's not right. Um, and the conclusion we came to was, well, there's no GDSs for anything other than flights. There's no rail bus or ferry GDSs. And those people are just starting to emerge. Um, this is probably you know, a really good business in two to three years. Um, and you came around shortly thereafter. And I'm curious if you could kind of talk a little bit about whether do you think you had you know, better timing than anyone else? Or do you think you saw an insight that no one else saw? Um, and you don't need to you know, criticize anyone directly in their strategies, but I would like this kind of, you know, to understand how you view the market and where you went right and what, what that secret was. That's a, that's an interesting question. So I, 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 my, my, of course, timing, you know, timing always plays a game in terms of, uh, uh, in terms of many companies. Like if you think of Netflix and streaming, if they didn't have the, you know, the technology, innovation from 3G to 4G to now whatever's next um, that makes streaming faster. You know, that I do think there is some of that, but I think that wasn't the case with us for a large extent. It was not so much timing the market. It was just more, um, I would say, brute force persistence around we are going to crack this because there is a true consumer need. Um, and, and the balance I picked very early on was it is a two-sided marketplace. We do connect all supply to demand directly. That means we need to solve every part of the equation from customer acquisition to landing pages to you know search, booking, ticketing, post-purchase, GDS, payment systems, business travel, corporate travel, leisure travel, basically all parts of the equation because there is no parallel to us in the travel industry, there is no GDS I can plug into. There's no OTA I, that could, you know, digest our data quickly and start searching train stations, bus stations outside of airports. So it wasn't something that was readily available that we could plug into either from the supply side nor the distribution side. So, so the strategy I took very early on was make sure that the balance is found between the two, and you can't really um, you can't really scale one without the other side. And actually, in, if I look back at all our internal presentations, the first three years, we actually had a three-legged three um, uh, pillar strategy, which was you need to scale coverage, which is you know more coverage means you can attract more users and the value for the users is higher the more uh, coverage you have and the more coverage you have, you can attract more users. So that formula is well-known in, in any marketplace businesses. But we added a third point of view, which was product, which is... Simple, beautiful end-to-end -end transport products never existed. Um, so we actually had to innovate on products. So we started with simple products. I'm buying a train from Berlin to Hamburg. And then we started adding more and more features around, you know, I have a, I have a discount card. I have XYZ. I'm going with my wife and children. Um, and then, you know, more and more products that we are adding now is I can combine trains and plus trains and then trains plus buses. I can do airport transfers. I can do air plus airport transfers. We do ferries. So the products also get complex and we've always never over invested in one of these three legs because then you killed too much. So you always need to find the balance. So when we do budgeting, fundraising, you know, resource allocation, we always make sure that the three pillars can, you know, can move in you know equal pace across the three uh, axes. If I can push back on that a little bit, I feel like 
um, this is probably flying in the face of advice that many of our listeners will have gotten to focus, right? Yeah. <laughs> you, you said brute force. And I think that, you know, what, you know, what would you say to that? Um, like, obviously, there probably is something you viewed as focusing in your own way. So how would you answer that focus question? Yeah, that's a good question. I think it is focus, but you can't, like, you can't underestimate focus is important. It's also important for us, right? And something most companies, including us, struggle with. Uh, but you can't underestimate bringing new market dynamics into an existing industry. And, and the market dynamics are, you know, large operators that historically have never given their data. They need to see customer. So, for example, right, my first presentation to a rail operator was, hey, I'd like to connect with your data so I can bring uh, customers. And then the question was, how many uh, users do you have? I was like, oh, I need your data to bring the user. They're like, ah, oh, when you do a million um, dollars in booking, million euros in booking, come back to us and we'll talk to you. I was like, but I need your data to do the million euros. You know what I mean? So you can't underestimate the fact that you need these three uh, pillars. It's, it's, it's probably orthogonal to the question of focus. You need to get market dynamics right. Uh, and within that, you need to focus, which is, you know, number of countries you're launching into, number of product features you build, you know, channels in which you acquire, et cetera. But, but uh, yeah, I, I don't think you can circumvent, you know, understanding how entire ecosystems and markets work when you push through a completely new product. It's, it's interesting, Naren. I mean, it's always it's like a chicken and egg thing. I mean, how did you overcome those kind of conversations where they wanted you to have X number of users and you couldn't give them those users until you had their data? Yeah, I think, I think in the very early days, right? So the problems of most, uh, I guess, um, some of the legacy operators is, you know, slower decision-making, slightly archaic technology, and generally um, fearful of, you know, innovation or new products, new companies coming on. But at the same time, they all have needs and the needs are very simple. Everybody needs to fill their seats. Uh, you know, they need to improve their margins. Uh, they need to grow, you know, because they grow at the pace of the, you know, um, annual econ economy, uh, etc. So, so generally, it's like I said, maybe persistence was the word I would use in the brute force persistence, because it's, <laughs> it's one of those things where you, you do understand what each supplier's needs are. Uh, and you make sure you produce those products that satisfy those needs. Um, and, and you keep investing on growth to scale on the user side as well. Like I said, it is very much finding the balance in the early days of both sides of the equation. Because I do know many companies, not just in travel, in other industries, that solve one side of the equation, which is large supply, but no idea how to acquire users. Or, or the other way around, where the supply is kind of broken, but not enough users, etc. And that simply doesn't work. It's interesting. Did you need some brute force or some other kind of use of words to persuade investors to back the idea? I mean, because <laughs> as, as David referenced at the beginning, you've raised a lot of money. Yeah. Uh, um, 150 million was the biggest round in 2018, I believe. Yeah. Um, it, but in the early days of when you were trying to raise money, what kind of uh, persuasive techniques did you need potentially, given that you know no one else has come anywhere close to raising as much money as you have yeah absolutely i would i would still go back to maybe persistence rather than brute force <laughs> the much better word to um uh, to stick to uh but raising capital is is something that's you know not um you know not, it's well spoken about etc i think 
um, the way I've always viewed raising capital is, you know, you're always going to have, you know, the investors who say yes, the investors who say no, the investors who are not yet fully there, that you push them across the line to come along. And, and, and that's always going to be the case. In the early days, my first fundraise was extremely hard. Like, you know, no one believed that I would get a single contract. Uh, let alone build the product because they said, oh, it's impossible. Why would uh, SNCF work with you? Um, so, uh, so that was the first one is convincing them of like small checks that, you know, pushes us to, to one step further. And then uh, as you get bigger, then you start adding other things like, hey, is your um, supply strong enough? The product works when I tested it, it didn't work, etc. And then as you scale, then you add new things like what's your unit economics? What is your growth strategy? What does your team look like, et cetera? So, so different phases have different investor assets. So it's not the same answer I would give um, to, to all, basically every, anyone asking about uh, fundraise. It's, it really depends on the phase of the company. But I will go back to the early stages, which is probably the hardest in terms of raising capital. The, the one piece of advice I would give is that most most you know, even in the early stages, we tend to get caught up in, you know, in the startup world around, um, yeah, this is probably contrarian opinion, but that's my opinion. Uh, we all get caught up in the world of, you know, reading a tech newspaper and say, oh, this X and Y Z company raised so much capital or, you know what I mean? It's not, it's not glamorous per se to be, you know, raising a lot of capital or, or not raising, it doesn't matter. It, what matters is you need a certain amount of money to push you forward. You only need one person to write the, that amount, uh, one check or one round to close, whether it's a syndicate or one person, to move you forward. And even if you get 99% no's, it doesn't matter. What matters is you have the money now and you can use that money. You believe in yourself. You believe in your vision. You move forward and you repeat that. So you don't need to fall into the cycle of, oh, I have 10 investors that came in. I passed on nine of them or, you know, I made them bid against you. All of this is not necessary when you raise, uh, when you raise capital. What matters is really trying to get one or two investors convinced that your vision is good and there is a real consumer problem that they will stand behind. And the most important thing is as long as they're standing behind you for a long period of time, because certain things like changing transport globally is a long-term thing. It's not a quick flip three, three and a half years and sell it. It's, for me, it's decades long. Um, and if they can stand behind that, um, then you take the money and you move on. It's, it's not optimizing for some perfect solution. And most of us, you know, fall into that trap, especially in the early days because of the ecosystem we're in, the news we read, et cetera. And we try to try to make sure we've raised a lot of money or, you know, a lot of in good investors come in, et cetera. But really it comes down to, you need to move forward. You need a certain amount of capital, get it done and come back to operations and keep building. So quick follow-up question on that, because I feel like, um, as you've raised this money over the years, uh, I think I can speak for myself and many other uh, travel founders. We've all, all been very impressed. Uh, some people are just like, wow, like, how did he do this? And then the people, I've been in discussion, people are like, well, he's a Harvard grad or well, he's a what? <laughs> they kind of keep on trying to come up with uh, random reasons why you're able to succeed to do it. So yeah. um, I, I'm curious, like, um, I know in, in Silicon Valley, a lot of times people, obviously, if you're making tons of money, it's easy. Um, but did you focus on one metric to tell a story um, before you were having revenue um, or was it really just revenue that really uh, rationalized that? And if so, what was that metric? Um, and, and just tell me what, what 
time of this of the company would like is it like in the early stage or is it more like because clearly as you get bigger and the fundraisers grow you need to have revenue yeah i mean um i'd say i'm most interested um uh, i feel like sometimes uh, when fundraising the tail wags the dog uh where i've seen people go raise five million at a 20 million dollar valuation yeah. um, just because um they're attacking a huge market and the investors agree frankly that like yeah they need five million to just just to start and, and other people will, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm less interested at the point where you're making, you know, $40 million and raising, you know, $40 million. Um, I'm more interested at the point where kind of maybe the fundraise um, seemed out of sync to the public with the amount of money you were making. Understood. Understood. Um, so, um, so that's a good question. So again, yeah, so I did graduate from Harvard, but that was helpful for me in, in what I learned about entrepreneurship and, and basically that's it I would say. So remember that I moved to Germany uh, to fund this company. I didn't know a single human being. I didn't speak a word of German. Um, so it was more how do I go knock on Deutsche Bahn's door and Renfe's door in Spain and you know speak in Spanish and use a friend to translate the presentation to get them to agree to give me data when I didn't speak a word of Spanish either. Uh, so it's a similar approach to investors, which is my first time ever to Silicon Valley was after I started uh, Omeo. So before that, I had no clue. I, I mean, of course, I had studied about venture capital. I had studied about investors, uh, but I actually had no idea um, about, you know, the names of the biggest VCs or, you know, what do you need to pitch, etc. So most of that was learning from other entrepreneurs' advice. Um, so my, my formula, was, formula is, is, is a, probably a, a stretch word, but my, the way I went about it is very, very quickly, I, I, I built relationships with two groups of people. One is um, travel entrepreneurs who built travel businesses to understand what is it in travel that you know, it's hard. How do you solve certain problems? And then second is other entrepreneurs that have scaled. Generally, I go for four to five X the scale you're at because you can then learn from them for another two, three years. Um, but if you go for 10, 20 X your scale, one, they're not interested in helping you because you're too small. And, and, you know, it's very hard to take their feedback and put into play because, you, you know, they're so far ahead in their thought process that you're saying, okay, that's nice feedback, but I'm, I have these XYZ daily problems. So these two groups of people were my first way into, uh, you know, getting their buy-in, getting them convinced that I'm actually going to build something very big. Uh, I'm not European, but I'm solving at that time a European problem. And I do want to build a global business that was founded in Europe. Um, and once I had the buy-in from, you know, travel entrepreneurs that can open doors, get me into meetings, and then, you know, other founders that have raised capital, I was able to then connect with um, angels, investors. It's basically the same process that any founder uh, goes through. Uh, it was no different for me than basically any other founder. It's interesting. I guess, like, can, I, can I quickly follow up with that, Kevin? Yeah, Sorry. Okay. Um, I, I guess kind of also more what I was getting at is that um, – uh, there's a saying like, you know, raise pre-launch or post-traction, right? And the idea yeah. is that post-traction, you have a lot, hopefully a lot of revenue that you can raise on pre-launch, yeah. you can sell the dream, right? And I guess that's kind of what I, I'm curious I see what you're about. Yeah. yeah, like yeah. to what extent were you selling a dream versus you actually had traction at which points? And yeah, I would just love to hear more about that. Yeah, absolutely. So, so it's, it's, I never optimized for any of that because that's, 
So what I optimize for, my view is the following, right? Bringing global transport, you know, hundreds of thousands of suppliers globally from ferries in Indonesia to, you know, buses in India to buses in, you know, Latin America to trains in Eurostar between London and Paris. All of this inventory in a single product end-to-end will take a lot of capital. It's not something you can do organically, slowly, and you need to move fast because the consumers, we see clear network effects between you know, a user who discovers us in Spain most likely is going to try us when they travel to Germany or Hungary or anywhere else. Um, so we need to, we need, we need capital. We always needed capital. So I've always taken the view is that anytime you're able to raise capital, keep raising because it is something that we need uh, to build. And I am in it for the long run. So it's not so much optimizing for pre-product, post-product, etc. It's that's for me when you optimize for valuation. For me, if I'm going to build a very big business in the long run. I'm optimizing for making sure I have capital through the long run. Um, so, so hopefully that answers your question in that I've always thought of we need capital and when there is sufficient demand that we've built up, we raise. It's not timed to certain things like what's happening uh, with our product or certain metric, et cetera. Talk, talk us through a little bit the questions that you had or the discussions that you had with your investors um, when you, you know, when you really started ratcheting up the investment, the, the level of rounds that you were taking, yeah. In regards to, you know, you're a consumer-facing business, yeah. Um, obviously, the, the the flip to uh, being a mobile ticketing. I didn't call you an OTA this time, but yeah, <laughs> the, the flip you. to be. <laughs> no, no, you're welcome. The flip to being a ticketing business uh, meant there was obviously investment on the tech side there, but. You're again. You're a consumer-facing business, which takes marketing and marketing yeah. money, and then you're you're getting into that game of pay-per-click on Google for one yeah. phrase. So, I mean, what talk? Like I said, talk us through some of the conversations and how they went with your investors about. You know, they're giving you a lot of money. Presumably, yeah. they didn't want you to burn it all on Google. Yeah, absolutely. Um, again, it 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 changes by the phase. In the first phase of investment, it was mainly around get sufficient supply. And what is the amount of capital uh, to build the supply so you can build a consumer product uh, and attract demand? So that was the first phase. It's, you know, if I was to launch five countries, how many engineers do I need and how much marketing do I have to spend um, so as to prove that, you know, there is a supply demand marketplace here and I can make it work. Um, As we scaled, um, those changed a little bit. Um, So in in the last latest rounds, you mostly talk about unit economics, growth in each market, how big is the market, can you add more products? For example, we go about a very consumer-centric view, which is the same consumer has different needs at different points of time. You know, once I take a, um, a train, sometimes I take a flight, you know, some people travel business class uh, for their work, some people travel economy when they travel with the family, sometimes I'm traveling on my own, sometimes I travel with um, wife and children. Uh, so the same person has different travel needs at different points of time. And since we provide all of these consumer needs, we serve all of these consumer needs, we're able to answer a lot of these questions in the travel space around how can we increase frequency views, uh, how can we attach more products to the consumer, etc. So, so the investor conversations in the early days were mainly focused around can we get contracts and can we build technology that's unique to us, that is scalable. Um, as we started growing, then the conversations around unit economics, how big can this be? Can we go global? The last conversations were around how do you rebrand? Um, what is the name? Like, you know, we were debating between, you know, rebranding uh, with Go, like Go Euro, Go 
Japan, etc.? Or would you do, you know, a single unified brand? What is good in the long run? Um, uh, how do you, how long, what is the lead time to go global? Uh, it's these questions that came up uh, in the last round, but it, it comes in addition to the standard investor questions like unit economics, acquisition costs, retention, what do your cohorts look like, uh, all of this stuff. Why do you think that, I mean, you, 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 you are in the space that you're in, multimodal, whatever you want to call it, you have raised more money than all of them combined yeah. times 10. Do, is there a sense perhaps, or maybe I'm just reading this wrong, that investors have decided to just almost just back one horse to prove the market possibly? Yeah, I, again, the market is still very early, right? If you look yeah. at the amount of, so the, the global market for transport, and we focus only on long distance transport, is very, very big, correct? It's over half a trillion. Uh, and I, I'm still getting estimates because there's so uh, sparse data available in this market. Um, and when you look at like inner city public transport, ride hailing, bike sharing, um, uh, you know, all sorts of you know inner city transport apps, uh, scooters, etc., and and the amount of capital that's raised there, I think this industry needs to do way more. A lot more companies have to raise uh, because the industry is equally large. It's just you know the amount of capital that's gone into this space is a fraction of what has gone into you know a parallel industry to ours, which is also mobility but within a city. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so my view is the following is that the industry is very large. It's still very young in understanding what is the true potential of multimodal transport? What is the true consumer experience that changes? Because in the other industry, the products are simpler. You can see how quickly people adapt. But in, in our space, products are still very complex. To bring a, um, a flight plus something as simple as airport transfer takes time because the first consumer question is, if my flight's delayed, what happens, right? You can take the next train. It, it still runs every 10 minutes. Um, but answering these questions in a single unified mobile ticketing experience is not so quick um, to do. So I think that as we scale, I'm, I'm very happy that we're pushing the boundaries of capital raise, but I hope that we're also pushing the boundaries of consumer experience, inventory systems that we build, mobile ticketing solutions, global scale of supply, and all of this that truly enables more people to see what is multimodal transport and how does it look like on a global scale. Thank you. So following up on that, actually, um, I think you know, most travel entrepreneurs are um, aware of part of the reason for, for what you just said, a, a low adoption uh, compared to rideshare, which is you know, rideshare is use case every day and travel is use case once every six months or something. And um, I, you know, shameless plug here, wrote an article for Focuswire uh, called uh, transit apps are the new OTAs. And the point of it was that um, one, that these transit apps are starting to think of themselves like OTAs and maybe rideshare as a loss leader to sell food and other things. Um, but also that it would really be smart for many OTAs to start um, thinking about moving into citywide use cases. And I've spoken to some people in the industry who lead up um, big or growing OTAs and that actually is on their radar to start um, moving deeper and deeper into citywide use cases to solve that customer acquisition problem. So um, I- I'm curious, considering what you just said about your um, it, the, the parallel mobility in the city use case getting much more attention, do you have any plans to basically focus on that a little bit or integrate that as, as a, a way to solve part of that problem? 
Yeah, I think the, the, it's a very easy answer, right? Because the amount of capital that's gone into it means that there's a lot more people that have a lot more capital that can provide much better solutions in the market today, right? So our goal is basically to partner with them because there are solutions coming out of it. We target a very different segment of the market and we just say, you know what, we have the consumers, they arrive at, you know, London St. Pancreas from uh, uh, Paris and when they get off, can I have an Uber waiting for you or a, or a, or a, a, you know, a tube t- ticket that I can push on the app and, you know, go partner with TFL or whoever else, totally we can do that. So in, in general, because this comes back to maybe one of your earlier questions is our focus is long distance transport. Uh, and there is a huge opportunity for us to do that in a global scale where one company can provide all transport across the world. And, and what we are not able to take on on top of this is basically inner city transport and there we'll just partner. Okay, uh, just uh, shifting gears a little bit to some more about kind of the the startup life, as it were. I mean, how have you have how have you as the you know before we went on air, you were talking about you know you're a single founder, as in you don't have a co-founder rather than being a single person. But yeah, uh, you know, how have you managed that? Because so many businesses do have co-founders, but you are on your own almost. Yeah, um, David will understand this very, very well, right? So startup life is, is difficult uh, for everything that's out there. Um, but uh, it's also something that comes with a lot of, um, uh, uh, what's a good word for it? Uh, um, satisfaction when you see your products, when you see your customers, when you see innovation coming from within your teams, when you see small things like an intern you hired four years ago is now running you know, a 40 people team, etc. cetera. Um, uh, so there's a, th- th- there is both sides of the equation. Um, I'm single founder as in, you know, um, uh, I'm the only founder mainly because I, um, when I moved to Germany, it was very hard to convince someone to come in and build this with me. I didn't know anyone, remember? It was more uh, pitching to others saying, hey, I'm going to build this, come work with me, come build it with me, me investors, etc." So the two hard things to convince was, you know, I will raise capital to build this vision. And the second one is, you know, the suppliers will give me their data so we can actually prove that the, the product market fit works. Uh, and both of these were very hard in the beginning. So by default, I ended up being a single founder. And remember, I've not built a company before. This is my first. Um, so, um, so what that meant for me was I always had to rely over heavily on two two. Um, uh, two groups of people. One is my direct management team and the people I work with on a day-to-day basis de facto became my co-founder because I don't have this one conversation with them and then go back, talk to my co-founder, think through and go back. I make decisions on the go with each management member uh, or each person I'm, I'm sitting with. So that allows both faster decision-making, but also treating them as if you know they're all part of you know the same story, so 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 that's how I viewed it. And the second, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, group I tapped into is I said earlier, other founders that have gone through this because they are in the same boat as you. Slightly different problem. Maybe they have co-founders, but you can get a lot of um, comfort on the failures they have gone through. And even though you fail on the same things, at least you don't feel lonely of of failing on the same things because somebody else has done it. So it's, it doesn't make you feel um, utterly bad, uh, but you still go through that. So these two groups of people give me strength to keep pushing. Uh, and startup life is exactly as you would describe. 
huge highs and lows, you know, a lot of sleepless nights, a lot of excitement things when things work and, you know, a lot of um, scary thoughts when things don't work. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, and over the journey, you keep learning every day. And as you hire new people, you learn more and more and it just never stops. It's this never ending game of constant learning as you build both from your customers and your people. So I have a quick question and then uh, Kevin's got one. We'll wrap up. Um, you talked a lot about moving to Germany and didn't know anyone and even pitching funders there. Um, I have to say one of the things I was impressed by not only just the amount of money that you raised, but where you raised it from in Europe. And uh, I think there's a completely different startup culture in Europe. And I've, I've noticed this where often sometimes investors think they're your boss or something like that. Um, I, would love for you to tell like a little bit about how you see your, the European startup scene uh, maturing, the European angel investor and investor scene maturing, and what differences you notice between your fellow startup founders in America and other places and uh, Germany. Yeah. Um, so when I moved here uh, six, seven years now almost, um, the startup ecosystem here was very early in its stage, very nascent, you know, few companies, few people had raised any amount of money. Um, and, and it was very, very small ecosystem. So it was almost like a bet in terms of, I like Berlin, it was low cost of labor, a lot of engineering talent, we could scale. The, the, the ecosystem today is hundreds of thousands of companies all raising, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in capital. You know, companies going public from Zalando at, I think eight or 10 billion euro market cap delivery hero. So the ecosystem is extremely mature now and you have all parts of the ecosystem, which is hiring talent from all over the world, uh, prices going up because uh, you play in a global scale rather than just a Berlin um, company and, you know, talent moving from everywhere. So it has all aspects of a vibrant ecosystem, capital coming from all over the world, whether it's Asia or the US or or local capital, et cetera. So the ecosystem is a lot more mature, but it still has a long way to go in terms of, um, you know, we don't see yet a lot of acquihires happening within the ecosystem. You know what I mean? Failure is still, you know, can be accepted a lot more because a lot of companies do go through ups and downs and it's totally okay. That's part of the ecosystem. So there's still a little bit of maturity to be, um, to come in the ecosystem. But I think, from a German ecosystem perspective, or I would probably pick like the larger European ecosystem perspective. I think we're at the best we've ever been. And there's still so much upside because there are founders that are willing to go the long way, willing to build big businesses. Um, you know, Spotify at 25 billion market cap, you know, founders don't sell early. People have bigger vision. Um, they're able to attract talent from anywhere in the world, from India, from China, from from Silicon Valley, they're able to raise capital from anywhere in the world. So I think uh, all, all the greatness that is uh, to come is still, I'm still very bullish on all of that. It's, it's interesting. I mean, just going back to something we referenced uh, earlier on in the podcast here, you know, people with great ideas, you may just end up you know, selling as some form of aqua hire. Zumbu that we referenced earlier, uh, uh, Alistair, ended up being the CTO at Skyscanner for quite yeah. a few years. And Rachel was the director of business strategy and operations yeah. at Skyscanner. So they ended up very well. And we all know what happened to Skyscanner. So uh, uh, just last one for me, really, just, I guess, more of a lighter question for us to end on. Well, as a, as a startup founder, what, what, uh, what is a common mistake that you see other startups founders making? 
that you look at them and you're just despairing possibly <laughs> that's a good question i don't know if there's like i need to think about that i don't know if there's a common mistake that everybody does i think in general including myself the the most common mistakes i've made is being too slow to make tough decisions whether it's new market entry letting go of someone uh, that's not performing hiring someone that's more expensive than your budget can afford um, stuff like this the day-to-day -day is where i notice most mistakes happen because there's discomfort on you know how much capital you have how your metrics should move um, you know it's this perfect plan that you pitch uh, but it doesn't work like that in reality and the people that can pivot make decisions faster are the best founders i think that i learned from so i think this this concept of making mistakes and and i always talk about it internally uh, in that you know success and failure for me are two sides of the same coin you cannot see one without the other and unless you're able to see the failures of yourself and others you will never even know what the success looks like or feels like um, so this is the common thing that most people uh, i the most common thing is around you know how quickly decisions are made letting go of things failing fast enough, making the tough decision, even it, if it doesn't matter whether it's the right or the wrong decision. What matters is you make that decision and give direction to people so people can move. I think these are the most common mistakes I do see. Okay, that, that, that's great. Thank you. Um, thank you so much for joining us on the, the uh, latest episode of How I Got Here, Naren Shah. That, that, that was really great. So we really appreciate you uh, spending a long time kind of uh, diving into the weeds of how you built the company and uh, uh, Omeo, formerly known as GoEuro, as we need to call it for a little while longer. So uh, thanks, Naren, for joining us. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Okay, I was, uh, I'm Kevin May from Focuswire, and uh, obviously my uh, co-host co here is uh, David Litwack from Motio. Uh, we look forward to uh, having you on another episode soon. Thanks ever so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the How I Got Here podcast. We'll be back next week with more inside stories behind startups and innovation in travel and transportation. Check mozio.com slash move for a complete write-up of the highlights of every podcast with translations into five languages. And get your daily dose of news on the digital travel economy by subscribing to the newsletter at focuswire.com. See you next week.